0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, Son, and Spirit, we come again into this place to hear from your word. And we say... Before we begin, we say thank you for giving it to us. It is your word. It is wisdom from on high. And so where it it speaks truth to us, where we know that it speaks truth from you to us for our good, for our growth, to change us into Christ's likeness. So we say thank you and then we pray right along those lines. Would you give your word power this morning? Father, by Your Spirit, to do what You sent it to do, to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ. We have before us a passage that is about His work to make a church, and His desire for that church as to how it is to think about itself. And I pray that You would accomplish in us a change of attitude, Lord, the change of affection, In me and in each of my brothers and sisters here, that you would accomplish a change that would make us lovers of your body. Lovers in word and in deed. For that to happen, though, Lord, you must grip us with the passion. The passion. What it is that Christ did to make this people, this new covenant community. He must grip us with that. That is how we are changed. And so Lord, would you accomplish that this morning on the way to changing our attitudes about the church. We need you for that. I have weak words. But you are omnipotent. And Your Word is powerful. So we will traffic in human words this morning, Lord, but would You speak spiritual words through them, around them and in them, that we would hear the truth and be gripped by it and changed. I am aware of my inadequacies. We are aware of our weaknesses, and so we ask You to overcome them, to transform them, to fill them with Your Spirit and accomplish Your work. Grow Your church for Your glory, for our good. In the name of Christ, I ask this for His honor here in this place. I ask this for our good, I ask it. Amen. We give our attention this morning to the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which contains some of the most familiar verses in the entire New Testament. This passage contains the paragraph that we, and I think probably most churches around the world, use as we celebrate the the Lord's Supper, communion. So, in a sense, we've been addressing this passage every month for our whole lives, So what else can there be to say about it? Don't don't we know this passage? And in a sense, we do. I mean, you kind of know what this is about, essentially. But unfortunately, we most commonly hear the particular paragraph that contains what are called the words of institution. This is my body. This is the cup of the covenant. The words of institution. we, We usually hear that paragraph taken out of the larger context in which Paul wrote it. And unfortunately, what that means is that we often miss the point we often miss the the main reason by which he gave us these words and what it is that he means for us to hear and how it is that he means for us to respond to it i myself as i studied this passage the whole passage this week realized that for a long time i've been misunderstanding something and and therefore slightly misemphasizing giving a, a bit of weight where it doesn't belong as I think about and even monthly talk about these words of institution. There's something that that we need to learn here from the whole context as we think about approaching communion next week. We had discussed moving communion to this week to make it match up with this passage, but as we were discussing that, the suggestion was made that we keep communion next week so as to give ourselves a whole week to do what we usually only have 30 seconds to do passage will exhort us, as we'll see, to examine ourselves, to to consider, to think, and we usually have about that long to do it before the cup's coming down the aisle. Well, now we're going to have a week to think about what this passage wants you, Christian, to examine yourself over. We'll we'll come to that. Let me read the whole text. This is chapter 11, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul launched into the, the subject of, of general worship gatherings and subjects related to that, and so he's he's still on that topic. And he had a kind of an even-keeled tone last week, but there's more heat this week. As we'll see, he's found something that is of great concern to him. Let me read the passage, beginning in verse 17 all the way to the end. But in the following instructions... But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. 1 Corinthians 11. He begins very clearly by saying he has nothing positive to say here. He has nothing to commend them over. He sees something incredibly wrong and he confronts it. And, and I think that something like this, perhaps not quite with this much heat, not quite to this degree, but something like this, I hope and pray is, is the message that he preaches to us this morning through this passage. He's found something here. Let's work towards it by understanding how the passage is built. Notice the bookends. There's something that sandwiches this passage together. In the beginning, when you come together, verse 17, and again in 18, coming together as a church, and in 20, when you come together, that's the beginning, and then the back end, verse 33, so then, my brothers, or brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, and in 34, so when you come together, What's the context? One of them coming together. Specifically, coming together to eat, not a picnic or a potluck or something like that. They're eating a, a worship meal. They are coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, which is different in their practice in a couple of important ways from what we think about. Our practice is once a month we tack on a little bit, you know, 10 minutes of cracker and juice on the end of a worship service. Very different back then. Back in that time, religions, almost universally, religions worshipped their god or gods or goddesses by means of, of a meal. An, an honorary, celebratory, Thanksgiving sort of meal. We, we saw this a little bit when we saw why it was that, they were, that the church was prohibited from eating the sacrifice meat in the temple. Because when you go and do that in the temple, you're participating in worship. Of that God in the temple. A meal in honor to, gathered together with all the people who follow that particular God to honor and worship and say thanks and, and to fellowship with the group. That was worship. And Christians did the same, celebrating the Lord's supper as opposed to that God's supper or that Goddess's supper. It's the Lord's. They would come together, and they would eat that, and often it was in conjunction with a full meal. A part of it was, was some, had some particular ceremony to it, but there was a whole meal, a whole evening, really, which was rooted, of course, in the Passover meal, which is where the Lord's Supper came from, which was also a full meal in celebration of what God had done, in worship of Him. They would meet in people's homes, and as you can imagine, logically, they would meet in the homes of people who were wealthy and had large enough homes to accommodate a large number of people. An important point Homes then were not usually large enough to gather the whole church in the dining room. Maybe ten, give or take. And then thirty, forty, fifty could sit outside in the, in the entryway or in, in the patio. People would gather together, they would eat, they would celebrate, they would worship, maybe mix in some, some teaching, mix in some praying. That was church. Well, they didn't call it going to church. They, they were the church, and they gathered together to eat in honor of the Lord. Their worship service. And this has all gone terribly wrong in Corinth. They are It's a good thing. They are still meeting together to do this, and in the presence of, of the Corinthian environment, that, that's a positive, but how they're doing it, he has nothing positive to say. There are divisions among them, verse 18. Factions, 19. which are necessary, they must be. What, what does that mean? How can a faction be a necessary thing? Well, he goes on to explain, that those who are genuine may be recognized. How this works. God who works good from all things, even things that are wrong, God is using a situation where a faction or division develops. What commonly happens Some sort of issue arises, some sort of of tension, and as instigators, people pour venom into it, something reveals itself about people. Some people refuse to receive correction and instead stoke the fire and they begin to show who they are and are separated from the church. God uses us to cleanse His people. It, it's necessary that there be these divisions, but they aren't a good thing, and they, we should be working to avoid them. And here's what's going on in the church in Corinth. Factions and divisions in their worship service. About what specifically? Well, it's a little hard to be certain. There are only a few details given. But what it seems is going on is that when they gather together to eat the Lord's Supper, notice the contrast, they aren't actually eating the Lord's Supper, they're eating their own Supper, verse 21. Some get gather and go hungry, and some get together and get drunk, which is not an indictment of drunkenness. The contrast is with hunger. Some gather together and have nothing. Some have plenty, in fact, too much. There's a contrast here between the haves and the have-nots in the church. If you combine this with what he says in 33 and 34, it seems that some people, probably some wealthy people, brought extra food along, kept it to themselves, ate in abundance, and kept outside some, probably some lower class people, and kept away from them all of the bounty. It's probably what's going on. Not completely clear. Paul, though, does indict them for. Humiliating those who have nothing? Whatever the issue is, it's creating a division in the church. And Paul's aghast. You've turned this thing, you've you've taken this that is this worship gathering, and you've turned it into some sort of of a ceremony in which you meet your own needs with you and your friends, and you separate out. You despise the church when you do this and humiliate other people. This is so wrong. This is not what this is about. Here's what it is about. 23 to 26, passed on from the Lord himself to Paul. Familiar words. Familiar also if you were to compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Similarities. But as always happens, when the Bible records something repeatedly, in different places, different things are emphasized. All true, just taken from a slightly different perspective. And there's a different emphasis here. And in this passage, what's emphasized? The end of the the red words, Jesus' words, 24 and in 25, ends with, Do this in remembrance of me. Do this, bread, the cup, in remembrance of me. 4, 26, as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's what this is about. Remembering me and proclaiming the Lord's death and what He has accomplished. Not about satisfying your own desires. But if you miss that, 27, and you eat in an unworthy manner, you're guilty. Guilty before God. Which is a significant warning, and he calls them then to examine themselves. Which is where we'll come in our final point. But before we come to God's call in 27 and following to examine ourselves, we first need to look at something that kind of sits at the middle of this passage and holds the weight of it. Verses 23 to 26. I'm going to make two observations. The first one from 23 to 26, and the second one then related to... 27 and following. Here's my first observation. Remember what God has done in Christ to make a new community. Remember what God has done in Christ to make a new community. This sits right in the middle of the passage. The first part's about the problem, the second part comes back to the problem, and in the middle is something else that he means us to, to kind of settle on. It's, it's the foundation that the thing is built on, the whole passage is built on. He wants to turn our minds back to something. So, 23, what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. Jesus told me to tell you this. On the night that he was betrayed. Do you remember that night? This whole thing is is supposed to be a living illustration. Put yourself there. On the night that he was betrayed, that night, it was the night of, of the annual Passover meal that itself was a night of remembrance where every male in Israel gathered together to turn their minds back to what God had done on that first Passover, delivering them. He had called His people to shed the blood of a lamb, cover their doorposts in it, and then His angel of judging would pass over them and not strike them. This lamb that would die in their place They celebrated that in in a very particular ceremony, a meal that had so much meaning laced into it. And on that night of remembrance, Jesus led this meal. He gathered His disciples together, His church in seed form. And He started by wrapping a towel around Himself and washing their feet. It's not in the text, but it's in the night. You need to remember that because it sets up the whole thing. He becomes their servant. This is the one who shortly before had raised Lazarus from the dead. Who had ridden into the city to shouts of acclaim about the the king. He wraps a towel around around his waist and washes their feet, their servant. Showing them, the text says in John, the full extent of his love for them all the way to the end. Foreshadowing the washing that he's going to touch on with the bread and the cup. Do you remember that night? Takes bread. This bread broken is my body. But That's a change. This bread broken, that's normal. They did that every year for their whole lives. This bread broken... Is my, he should have said, is the bread of affliction. Calling their minds back to the Exodus when the people ate the bread of affliction, reminding them of the hardship they endured under the Egyptians, but how God brought them out in power, saving and delivering. This is the bread of affliction. This is my body. The one that will bear affliction for you. In the plural, for you. This is the surprise moment in in this evening of this meal. This is my body right here that will take on itself what should be on you. What you've suffered under the affliction, I will bear it for you in your place. And this cup holds a cup. This cup, it's just wine, or with us, it's just juice. This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Whew. We breathe over that every month. If they were awake, it would have knocked them down. He's tapping again into much symbolism in the supper and into a whole river of prophetic prediction. There was a time coming when a new covenant would be made. Not like the old covenant. God brought His people out of Egypt, delivered them and made a covenant with them. But almost from the very first moment He began to talk about another coming covenant. A covenant that would be better A covenant in which God Himself would come to live inside of His people and therefore would make them to be a community that would walk with Him, know Him deeply, and love Him with all of their hearts and with all of their soul, with all of their mind and all of their strength. Keep His commandments. I'll do that one day. One day. One day. Right now. This is the cup of the new covenant right now in my blood. Covenant needs to be sealed with blood. What a covenant is, is it's a relationship between two entities. And when covenants were, were sworn, they offered blood, saying, If I break this covenant, do this to me. Take my life. Blood. If I break this covenant do this to me blood sealed covenants and Jesus says this is the new covenant in my blood my blood seals this covenant not yours mine and it's a covenant it's a relationship between God and a people A relationship in which God accomplishes what He has been saying He would accomplish all throughout the Scriptures. I will make a people and I will be your God. A people. Not a person. A people. He holds out to them bread and breaks it. I take your affliction. He holds out to them a cup of blood, so to speak. I seal a covenant with you. And we eat a meal together showing that we are at peace. Don't ever forget this night. Remember me. Remember me. As often as you eat this and drink this, you proclaim this good news, the death of the Lord, that makes a covenant and takes our affliction. You have to see this. Brothers and sisters, this sits at the center of the passage and it is the reason for the rest of the passage. So we'll come to what the rest of it's about. But you You have to sit here, reclined at the table that night, and see what Jesus is doing. He told Paul to pass it on to us and to remember it to the generations. He is, Jesus is demonstrating in the cup and the bread what he's going to do on the cross love you. Plural, not singular. Love you. A people. Love you by saving you. Love you by committing himself to your defense and for your growth. Sanctification. Love you by never leaving you or abandoning you and promising to come back and get you. 26. Until he comes. This is... A statement about the work of God for you, that is His love for you, is an expression of how wide and long and high and deep, passionate is His affection for you, His body, His people, His bride. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Paul teaches that in Ephesians. Jesus is saying that in this supper, I wash your feet, I break my life for you. We have to see the for you piece because we are, we are accustomed to making the cross something individualistic. Follow what I'm saying there. We are accustomed to making the cross about Him and me. Which of course it is. Of course it is. You can't save a people without saving individuals. Of course it's about Him and you. But this is a banquet, not a dinner date for two. It's a banquet. It's a people. It's all in the plural. In the Bible, God's plan is a group plan. From the very beginning, He intended to create an earth and to have it filled with a people. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A people in this place. To bring God glory. He didn't accomplish that in the old covenant. He couldn't. Because of what we were. But he accomplished it in the new. Reversing what has been wrecked by the fall. People. Think, think about it. The chaos and pain and sorrow that is this world is all conflict between people. Some of it conflict with nature, I suppose, but the vast majority, conflict between people. Never what God intended. God intended the place, this place to be filled with the people who were all in union with each other and in harmony with Him and reflected back to Him and to each other how good He was all broken at the fall it's all wrecked and in every single one of us is a yearning for community for people for oneness for for love and it's not there and it can't be found except in what god's doing in this people in the new covenant he created the church to be this He is committed to working it into us. He loves us in our failings in it. But he is about, the gospel is about making covenant with a people. A covenant. We remember what Christ has done in making a new community, a covenant community. And to reject that is to say something like one man speaking to another, I want to be friends with you, I really enjoy you, I want to come over and watch the game and hang out, but I can't stand your wife, can you get rid of her before I come over? It's going to be a problem. One woman calls up another and says, hey, you want to come over for coffee on Saturday afternoon? I would, but frankly, I find your kids really annoying. Can you get something else for them to do? They don't come over. It's going to be a problem. If the parent actually likes the kids herself, if the husband actually likes the wife himself, and this one does. (laughs) Not all do. This one does. We're dealing with a bridegroom who voluntarily broke himself for us, who voluntarily laid down his life for us, is passionate about his bride. And a great big problem arises when we attempt to say, I want to worship you. I want to walk with you. I want to be tight with you. And if you can get rid of all of them, that would help. Oh, you don't want to get rid of all of them. You love them. with a, Oh, I'm sorry. See the awkwardness of that? That's what takes us to the second point. The second observation, God will judge those who fail to love the body of Christ like He does. God will judge those who fail to love the body of Christ like He does. Verse 27 gets right to this point. Whoever, therefore, in other words, given what we were just looking at in 23, 4, 5, and 6, that what is going on at the Last Supper is not just God saving me, but God working to save us God laying down His life, shedding blood to make covenant with a people. Given that, therefore, whoever attempts to worship, eat this bread and this cup in an unworthy manner, is guilty. My version says, guilty of profaning. Literally, is just guilty of the body and the blood. Guilty as if you are the one who shed the blood and broke the body. which is serious, that should sober us and make us think about something. We're, we're attempting to worship, and what we find here is that actually we're offending. It's underlined in 29 that says a very similar thing. Anyone who eats and drinks, worships, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's what the text says. So judgment from God is on the table here. It would behoove us to figure out what it is that makes him go there. 27 and 29 help us. Eating in an unworthy manner in 27. The parallel of 29 helps clarify that. Anyone who eats without discerning the body. Without thoughtful careful regard for the good of the context would require for the good of the body anyone who eats without careful thoughtful regard doesn't discern eats without careful thoughtful regard for the good of the body invites judgment i mentioned that there was something that i misunderstood this is the point i misunderstood what Paul's talking about here and what Paul means then when he says in verse 28 right between these two verses, let a person examine himself then, he is not talking about, as, as I've often thought and have presented, sit and think as the cup's coming down the row, sit and think about your last week and any possible sin in your life. Now, of course, we should think about our sin and, and deal with God in all of our sin. That's not the focus though. This context is about sit and think about You and the body. That's the unworthy eating. I'm attempting to come near to you while at odds with them. I'm attempting to come near and honor you and worship you while disregarding, not giving careful thought to the good of this entity that you love. That's the uneating in a worthy manner. Despising the church Humiliating it. If you, a worshiper of God in the church, do not love the body of Christ like He does, God will judge you. That's what the text says. Judge. In a variety of ways. And I could hasten, for those who are uncomfortable, I could hasten to point out verse 32 talks about judgment as discipline. That's a word maybe as Christians we're a little more comfortable with. But there's, there's a play on words going on here in the original. There are several different words that are all related and indicate this kind of f- flow of progression. If, you put, if I were to kind of level them all out, it would say judge yourself so that God won't judge you and maybe even take you to the place where as He judges the rest of the world. They're all kind of related words. But the nuances matter. judge maybe discipline helps god will discipline his people who do not love the body like he does what's the point then not to get hung up on what the discipline would look like and and how i would know if it happens uh, He's informing them that it can be very severe. Some of them are sick, some of them even dying in Corinth. God is, is quite upset with their extreme problem. But the point is not to get hung up on the judgment. The point is, in 28 and 31, let a person examine himself then, 31, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. The point is, see that God is concerned about this, take a step back, give some thought to it, and change course yourself. Examine yourself. So I simply put it to you. Be open with God and ask Him, is there anything that you would put your finger on in my life, God, As to how I regard the body. Another way of putting it. Do you love the body like He does? Do you discern the body? Do you give careful thought to the good of the body? This group that you are supposed to be in covenant with, in union with, Now, as I ask that, I have to acknowledge there, is a, there has to be a continuum here. We, we have to see it as a continuum. On one end, you've got Corinth that is extremely calloused. And the judgment of God is extremely heavy. But back down that continuum, there are, I think, a bunch of places where maybe God might poke you and say, Right here, are you in conflict with the church, with somebody in the church? I don't mean just do you disagree about something. I mean, are you disagreeing in conflict? Are you turning a a blind eye or a deaf ear to needs of people in the church? Or are you so disconnected from the church that you have no idea what any of the needs are? Because you're not really a part of it. Are you not a part of it because you think little of it, denigrated in your mind? Or just too busy with your own life? Those are a bunch of different places. I don't know where where you are, but they are different ways of maybe God saying to you, you don't love this people like I do. And if you're part of this local church, I mean this local church. Not Christians in general. These ones. I think, brothers and sisters... I think that this is an, an area that we need to grow in. And don't dismiss it by just taking the extreme example. The, the Corinthian thing is an extreme example, and there are some here who perhaps fall into that category. But most of us, I think, are, are a little bit further back down the continuum, and frankly, we just don't understand covenant. Covenant. I think if, if we were to kind of put it all out on paper, a whole bunch of us think of the church kind of like a supermarket. There's one on every corner. Goodness. They're all over the place. And maybe Smith's is a little better than Harmon's. Right, you know, I, I go to a fresh market for fresh produce and go over here for this. I get my needs met in different places And yes, sometimes I'm not quick enough and I get roped into something and I end up teaching a class somewhere. But we don't fundamentally think about a connection to a people that is near unbreakable. Think of how different it would be if you thought of the church as my primary commitment in all of life, such that I don't even consider jobs in Phoenix because I don't live in Phoenix. I live right here with this people. Nobody thinks like that. Why? I want to tread carefully here because I think there can be good God-honoring reasons to take a job transfer. But most of the time we think about this is because priority one is career. What would be good for me and my family, and I got a great opportunity in Dallas. There's churches in Dallas, I'll find one. That has nothing to do with covenant. A, a people that are connected to each other. Now, uh, careful, careful, careful. There could be good reasons to move to Dallas, okay? I don't know any, but <laughs> nothing came to mind right away, but there, there could be. Covenant. The idea that this people is the place that gets your best time. Your best resources—the place that's on your heart first—that you you live you move throughout the week, living thinking about this people. It doesn't just like occur to you Saturday night. Oh yeah, we got church tomorrow. You you're living in the church twenty four seven, and maybe oh yeah, we're going to gather together in that building tomorrow but the church is your people. We are we are really a long way from that. That would have been inescapable to the people gathered in the upper room that night. We are the us. Would have been readily apparent to them. Helped by the fact that outside of this room everybody disagrees. Helped by that fact for sure but it would have been very apparent when he breaks the bread and says from this loaf you take some and you take some and you t-. this is the loaf me you take a little bit from this cup we each take a little bit we are an us that would have been crystal clear and most of us don't think like that and so we find that people go sick in the church for months and nobody contacts them unless some particular person often the expectation is somebody who's paid to do this kind of rallies the troops and then goes that's not how people who are committed to each other act if you're in a family you you know if you're parent, if your brother, your sister, your husband, you know if they're sick and they need help and you just do it. Because you live with them. We have a long way to go in the idea of covenant community. But we will never get there if all that happens is Somebody stands in a pulpit and says, we have a long way to go and we better get there. That'll never happen. The only way, and I mean underlined only and bold, the only way to get this, to get to this place, is if 23, 4, 5, and 6 grip you. And you never forget the upper room. And you remember Him. It's, it's, it's the antidote to turning this thing to be about me is I remember Him. I remember Him. And as I do this, I proclaim His death. If, if that would grip you, it would change you and you would see Jesus as good, broken for you, Individually and you as a body. If that would grip you, it would chase out the, the natural tendency in us to live for me, for self, and to see this as my place of provision for me. It is that, but it's more. That has to grip us because He expects us and requires us to come to the place of loving the church as He does. So what I put forward to you before we move towards next week is examine yourself. Examine your heart attitude in regards to the church. Do you love this body like Jesus does? Are you committed to it like he is? Are you discerning it? Are you thinking through carefully what does this body need? Then let me say, I, am, I mean this church body. One thing that our church in particular has to underline is that I'm not talking about Intermountain Christian School. I'm talking about the church. The school is a part of it. The school is not the church. I'm talking about the church like the school, not against the school. I'm talking about the church. This body, right here. So examine yourself. Lord, I want to be tight with You and need to be tight with Your people. Where is their gap? Help me close that so that when I come to You, I can come to You honestly. Embracing what You embrace. Submitted to You in all things. Christ loves the church and gave himself for her and he wants you to also. Let me pray. Lord, would you grow in us love for your people? Really a submission of our lives to you and the people that you have made. To help us with that, it is—it does not come naturally to us. Lord, open our eyes to the places where there is a gap between what we should be and what we are, and then graciously help us to close it by by giving us an affection for you that is far superior to the affection we have for ourselves. Help us with that, Lord. We need help. To make us to be a church pleasing to you. A display of what community is supposed to be like. Community created by your spirit that the world hungers and thirsts for, but cannot make in its own power. Make it in us. For our good, but for your glory here in this place, among this people. That's what I pray, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen.